welcome to another edition of Tarvalon Talks. I'm Diana, and I'm joined by Fenya and Thad. And today we are continuing our Wheel of Time on Prime rewatch episodes with discussions about episode seven of season one of Amazon's The Wheel of Time. A quick note before we dive in, we will try to keep the bulk of our episodes spoiler free through books one and two of the series, but we will spend a portion at the end talking about foreshadowing and spoilers in each of the episodes for our discussion. Okay, let's talk about potentially the best cold open in the whole show, The Blood Snow. Potentially. I think it is the best cold open in the show. It's pretty fantastic. What do you guys love about it? The choreography of everything that goes on, like getting to see Aiel fighting finally, even if it's a pregnant woman, it's uh, pretty fantastic. It's very well shot. I think especially because it's a pregnant woman. <laughs> right. Like, show show more women fighting while heavily pregnant, please. <laughs> while actively giving birth. Yes. And she is in labor the entire time. She kills, like, what, six men? She kills a bunch of people. How much more badass can you get? She was fantastic. Yeah, she's pretty awesome. And she does it also while being stabbed, because she gets stabbed at one point. And still kills the dude who stabs her. Like, oh, so good. Pulls that knife out, turns it around, and sticks it right back into him. Yeah, I totally agree. The fight choreography in this scene is incredible. The camera work is incredible. Also, it is bright, 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 bright. Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon. Take notes. This is how you film a fight scene where I can actually see what's happening. It's so amazing. The actress who plays Tigrain is a stunt double normally. And they cast her specifically for Trigrain because she could do her own stunts, which I think is very cool. Fantastic. I think I heard that previously, but I had totally forgotten. I kind of hope we see her again. I don't know if we will, but I hope we do. That would be awesome. The only way that we're going to see her is kind of in that flashback. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't know if it would make sense to see a lot of her, but she was awesome. So I wouldn't say no if we did. (laughs) Yeah, very true. I think the only other potential we could see is... Still a flashback, but her going to the waste, because they do talk about that. I would like that. I'm not sure if they have enough space to really devote any time to that, just given the span of the show and the amount of seasons that we're getting. But It's uh, wishful thinking, though, right? Yes. But it's amazing that we got this. I figured we would get this kind of mentioned in passing, but we actually get to see it, because it ties very well into a lot of stuff that happens in the show especially later on in the episode with uh, with men and everything. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's a great introduction for the episode and a great kind of counterpoint for Rand's realization at the end. At one point in the cold open, Tigrain takes the whole hood of her veil off so that we can see that she has red hair. I think it's meant to really emphasize that like this is Rand's mom. Look, she's a redheaded woman. And she's called Tigrain in the when you if you pause the episode, my TV at least will tell me all of the actors and who they're playing. So Oh, on the X-ray? Yeah. So her name is not a spoiler. Her name is Tigrain. One thing that I have always wondered about and that I'm wondering about now with them having cast Elaine for season two, and this is a little bit of a div- divergence from the cold open in particular, um, is, is it going to be confusing for show only fans that Elaine and the other like Camelin nobles have red hair? And so do the Aiel. And that's like the Aiel's main characteristic in the show. What do you guys think? It might be a little confusing. Hopefully they'll cover something about it to explain why. I feel like, yes, it might be a little confusing, but I actually don't think the show is going to spend any time explaining it. Because again, it's just like such a little detail that I think they're probably going to 
even if they wanted to, I think it would be something that would get cut because it's not ultimately important to the story at all. Either it won't get like mentioned specifically or it'll be kind of a passive, you know, it's in the background of the scene kind of thing. And if you didn't catch it, you miss it. Yeah. Like they're, I don't think they're going to focus on it at all. Yeah, I just worry that show fans are going to be like, they're going to meet Elaine and they're going to say, oh, she's an Aiel because she has red hair. And us book fans are going to have to be like, no, 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 she's not. And they're going to be like, but she has red hair. And it's going to be like, "Ah, she's not, though, we promise. And they have said specifically now in the show, especially by Loyal, like, it's funny to see a person with red hair this far out of the waist. So we'll see on that. I I think we might be not giving people enough credit, though. Potentially. Potentially, I am not giving people enough credit. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I don't ever get that question. Or are you being oddly specific to a friend who you know will get confused by this? I am not. (laughs) But (laughs) I am not yet. (laughs) I worry about the show. And these are one of the things that keep me up at night. I don't think ultimately this is going to be worth worrying about. (laughs) No, definitely not. So after the cold open, then we go to the ways and the ways closing up. And them kind of running through the ways. The ways are very dark, but they are supposed to be. So it's kind of okay. Definitely was one of the complaints that people I watched the show with. They were like, oh, God, the ways are so dark. We can't see anything. And I'm like, I know. At least they gave us the lightning so we could kind of see sometimes. True. True. There's a lot of like back and forth and very sassy Rand in the ways. He keeps interrupting Loyal and he's really mean to and about Loyal in the it's like at one point he's like, oh, God, if Loyal says we're going to this is going to take a long time, we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> like Rand. I totally missed that line the first time because I watched through them with uh, captions the second time and I didn't even hear it without the uh, subtitles. Oh, he's so sassy. So mean. Rand, be nice to Loyal, please. <laughs> How did you guys feel about the overall design of the ways? I think that they were good given what they had to do. So they're in a sound stage and each of the paths of the ways is like modular and they moved them around to kind of like redesign it. I thought it was fine. I don't think what they did sort of displayed the scale of the ways as I imagine them in the books. I'm hoping because I'm assuming we're going to get more ways in the show and I'm hoping when they have more time for post-production that we'll get like more a sense of scale and that they truly do like drop off into the void and that there's paths above them and below them yeah it felt kind of small i would agree with that ultimately i was kind of neutral on them but like you said they didn't really have that sense of grandeur that i was expecting although you know with how loyal described the ways the show and in the book it's like this could just be a small snapshot of everything else it could just be a super dilapidated part because everything was falling apart because they you know they've been unused for three thousand years basically yeah and then the trollocs came through and defaced them so (laughs) I did like that short throw to Perrin about his eyesight for being a wolf brother coming up. That was a real nice, just kind of quick little thing that they never addressed again. Yeah, Rand being like, how did you see that? It was a really clever way to show that what Perrin is doing is not normal. I liked that too. I thought that was very good. I liked his response. I don't know. I love these subtle little moments that give you a hint that there's more to um, the characters than you think initially. And that they're like they're changing um, in ways that they're not familiar with. It's really a really nice way of just building that. So we saw that Moraine had opened up the ways without an Avendis or a leaf on the outside. And once they close on the inside, when Matt gets left behind and they're like, oh, we can't chill on the ways. How were they going to open up the gate from the inside? That is my question. Like, Moraine, what was your plan? 
if you can't channel in the ways, you know it's going to summon Mashi and Sheen. How are you going to get out into the blight in the first place? Well, presumably the way that they do it in the end, and like she channels in the end anyway to open the gate on the other side. So presumably. Yeah, she does. That channeling takes a long time. Also, we do have production shots of Fane with the leaf. So we know that it exists and it can be used. We also knew that Fane was in there because, you know, we hear the whistle. We see him. We see him like, yeah, after the fact, but we hear the whistle first. No, we actually see him in the ways. Yeah, there's like a lightning flash. It is split second. No, 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 that happens at the end when they're getting the hell out of Dodge. You hear the whistle first. Yeah, you hear the whistle first. The trollic happens. They all funnel through, and as a last shot, you see the lightning strike and you see Fane. What bothers me about the production shot with the Aventasaurus leaf is that we don't actually see it in Fane's hand when he's walking out. And it is a long shot of Fane walking out of the ways after them. They were like, oh, look, we did have the leaf. I'm like, you didn't, though. Like, we all watched the show, guys. Like, you can't. This is not the correct use of this term, but like lie to us like that you had it because you didn't. And they don't even address it. Like they Moiraine never mentions, oh, I had to channel this one open because there's no Aventasaurus leaf on this side. Or like she doesn't even like look for the Aventasaurus leaf on the Faldara gate, like nothing. Like there's no mention of it whatsoever. And it's it just feels like a very illogical and like irrational thing to be like oh we can't channel in the ways because it will summon machi and sheen but that's also our only way out and it's gonna take me a solid minute and a half to channel us out of here so you gotta dance channel apparently because both him and Nynaeve were doing that i kind of think it's funny that it bothers you so much just because and i i mean this with with all the love in my heart of course but it seems to me like such an inconsequential thing but also i'm a little less attached to the books than you are it's more that it doesn't feel consistent with Moiraine's characterization in the show. She's very methodical. She always has a plan. Rand even comments in episode eight, like, you always have a plan and a plan and a plan. And it just felt a little bit like this is where I feel like the script starts to kind of slip a little. It felt like bad writing more than it did. It, it just like wasn't well thought out. And you know how I feel. I, I hate bad writing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do know that. I mean, for me personally, like, I have no issue with saying, okay, we can't channel in the ways, like, while we're walking to our exit, but we got to get out somehow. Not having an explanation didn't bother me because I was like, okay, yeah, sure. You don't, you obviously don't want Machinchin while you're, you know, on the journey. But if you, if that's what you have to deal with to get out, then that's what you have to deal with to get out. Yeah. I, I just would have liked some acknowledgement a little earlier. Like, a, we can't channel right now, but we are going to have to channel at the end. I don't know. Just, I would have just tweaked that. Like, I felt like there was little, there's just little tweaks that they could have made that would have just, like, tightened this up. And it felt instead a little bit like there were loose threads that, if you think about it for two seconds, don't make any sense. But then they get out of the ways, and they have all been crying because of what Machin Sheen says to them. Oh, also, Machin Sheen, definitely not as terrifying as in the books. Yeah, I was very dismayed at the depiction of Machin Sheen. I was disappointed, absolutely. It seems lame. Like, this this depression thoughts whispering in your head, okay, that's not scary. But, I mean, like, it's bad. It's not fun. But it, it didn't have the impact that Machin Sheen and the books did for me. As long as we get later Fane in the winds and we just get a really cool scene with that. Yeah, that could be cool. I totally disagree, though. I, so for one thing, the horrific torture that Machin Sheen describes in the books would have definitely made the show R-rated if they had written it into the show. 
Hey, it's on a streaming platform, baby. They can do anything. I guess. <laughs> but this does have a young, like a, like a, not a young adult per se, but a younger-ish audience. I don't know. I feel like, <laughs> I don't think it would have worked. Give us our wind of madness. I liked that it's also their distorted voices telling their own fears back to them. Yeah, that was a, that was a nice touch. Yes, like that is a nice touch, but overall, lame. Machinchi, <laughs> just lame. Alrighty. Thumbs down. They are much more affected by it than we are because they all come out crying. Like they are all crying. Even Moiraine, like and Lan, all of their eyes are red and puffy. And then they're in Faldara and they head to this very cool fortress city that has a very, very cool like Chinese slash East Asian aesthetic, which I really liked. I love Shinar in fashion. Oh, it's so good. We see Uno. He swears. <laughs> in basically every scene, it's incredible. <laughs> I can't wait for more Uno in season two. We get hints that Lan might be Secret Prince. And then they meet with Algomar. And Algomar is so rude to Moiraine. Like, oh my god. He's an asshole. They fumbled his character so hard in the show comparatively to the books. In the books, he's just like, ah, I said I welcome to my city. And in this one, he's just like, we don't need the White Tower. And it's like, dude, what? I was very upset at this depiction of Agomar. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I only like it in this episode because it at least sets up the absolutely illogical choices that he makes in episode eight that we will get to. Like, he is just hubris personified, and I guess you have to have that in every show. But I also didn't like it. He's so rude to Moiraine for no reason. He's rude to his sister for no reason. Like, he's just rude for no reason all the time. And Moiraine also can't stand him because later she's very sassy about him to Amelisa when they're talking about Min. She's like, oh, yeah, no, Agomar would never go to Min because he knows all the answers. And I'm like, oh, OK, Moiraine's still pissed. <laughs> <laughs> I did like that line. Fumbled. I, you know, I, I didn't have any strong feelings about Agomar versus his depiction in the books, mostly because I'll be honest, I didn't remember who Agomar was in the books. <laughs> but <laughs> this character is so unlikable and it, it feels like they just set him up to be an obstacle because they thought they needed an obstacle and not because they actually like had a very strong sense of what they wanted this character to do in these two episodes. Agreed. Yeah, I agree with that. These two episodes are really, like the script really suffers. They are COVID riddled. Yeah, absolutely. Also in Moiraine's conversation with Amelisa, where they talk about the fact that Amelisa wasn't accepted at one point, she tells Amelisa to have the Reds go get Matt. And I was like, why? I still don't know what they're planning on doing with Matt's story arc. Like, these just seem like weird choices. It probably had to do with script rewrites for the Matt actor leaving the show, and they probably scrambled for something, and this was the best they could come up with, is all I can imagine. I mean, I'm sure that that's why, and that they probably had a much different idea when they were initially like planning this, but it's one of the major things that gives me pause about like how season two is going to be, because I just don't know how they're going to make this storyline that they seem to be going for align with the books yeah like so moiraine knows that matt can't channel or is pretty sure that matt can't channel i mean obviously she has rand so at some point she's going to know that rand is going to channel so matt probably can't she keeps talking about this darkness inside of matt which i am like moiraine you stop slandering my baby boy there is no darkness inside of matt he's just poor leave him alone <laughs> like leave him be there is no darkness inside of him i don't know what you're talking about she should probably at this point be able to infer that he can't channel 
I don't know why she would send the reds after him specifically. Like, it doesn't make sense for a blue Aes Sedai to be like, oh, yeah, the red should go get him. Like, she should ask for the blue's help. She should ask for the yellow's help. At the very worst, she should ask for the green's help because she's so buddy-buddy with Alana. Like, it just doesn't really make any sense. The only way I could square this hole in my head is she wants to, like, give Leandrin a bad time. And so she's like, here, Leandrin, you deal with this really annoying boy who I had to deal with for months on end. Like, that's the only way it makes sense to me. It's just, I don't understand it. Because we know from the teaser from season two that Matt is going to get picked up by the Reds. And he does have this have a scene where he interacts with Leandrin, which I cannot wait for. But it would make a lot more sense if the Reds had, like, taken him from the Yellows or any other Aja, I think, than for them to just be like, oh, yeah, we picked him up because Moiraine said so. I mean, if Moiraine sends the Reds after him, just because she wants Leandrin to have a shit time. I'm here for that plot line. <laughs> yeah, I have no thoughts on it one way or another. I'm just kind of eh about it. After she talks to Amelisa, they do all go to Min. She takes the whole Emmons Field 4. So Perrin, Rand, Egwene, and Nynaeve. And we get some very cool visions. We get Perrin with his yellow eyes and blood running down his chin. We get Rand holding a baby, which it's interesting to me that Min can see Ishamael's like fake world. But sure, that's fine. And then we get a couple of visions for Egwene and Nynaeve that I think we're going to have to talk about in the spoiler section because I'm pretty sure if there are spoilers. <laughs> Which is the purpose of Min's character is to give you foreshadowing and spoilers. By the way, for all of you show only people, that is her purpose in the, in the plot. I feel like they've been a lot more liberal with her talent in the show than, than in the books in some aspects. How so? I don't know. In the books, it was Min says all the time, ah, I can't control it. It just happens when it happens. And in this show, it's it's just like laser pointed at the person and be like, all right, that person and that person and that person, they're going to die. They're, they're going to get married. Something's going to happen to them. I mean, in a way, it's just another iteration of her being a plot device. Yeah, basically. It works in the short, but I was just kind of like, mm, about it. Like, I am not too fond of these last two episodes all too much to be perfectly transparent so like the first six leading up to this i've been like they're great they're fantastic everything works and then it just kind of starts going downhill for me so i may be less than positive about a lot of stuff that is totally fine and very understandable i think i love episode seven for all that i have been like what is happening in the script because of the next scene which is when they go i'm sorry before we move on to the next scene like do you guys have any other thoughts about men and her visions no, but I, I like the actress and her characterization of men, how she's kind of like just so done with it, being able to have these visions because, you know, Moraine comes in and is just like, hey, tell me about these kids. And she's just like, oh, all right. Whereas in the book, she's always just like afraid to step on people's toes. And she's just more of a pushover than compared to showmen so far. I will agree with that. I am excited to see how, I think her name is Kay Alexander, is the actress. I am excited to see how she plays her. I also like that she feels older than Rand. In the books, she's supposed to be older than Rand, and it has nev never, even from her like first intro, never felt older than him. So yeah, I, I like that we're going to get that like age difference, and her maturity, I think, will, will go a long way towards their future interactions. And then they go back to Faldara um, and they're all sitting around a fire talking um, and they're all pretty pissed at this point. Like every everyone's in a bad mood. Moiraine comes in and immediately Nynaeve just starts giving her a hard time as Nynaeve is wont to do. Moiraine in a, what I felt was positive, uncharacteristic Moiraine thing to do does eventually explain who Min is and why she went to go see her um, and that she was hoping to like 
have Min help her figure out which one of them was the Dragon Reborn so she can just take that person to the Eye of the World and spare the others that they're going to die because she is convinced that if they go to the Eye of the World, they're going to die. And then everyone gets really mad at her and is like, we may or may not go with you. And Moiraine's like, all right, fine, I'm tired. And she leaves. <laughs> which is a very bad summarization of what happens in the first part of that <laughs> scene. But... Moiraine has had enough of their shit. She's going to bed. More or less, yeah. And then they all start like talking and arguing and trying to decide if they are going to go with Moiraine. And I feel at this point, both Egwene and Rand, so Rand for sure, but also Egwene, are pretty convinced that each one of them is the Dragon Reborn. And you can kind of like see it in their body language where like Rand is starting to be like, okay, I'm going to have to go by myself. I am going to have to. And Egwene is also kind of having that conversation, but like wants the rest of the group's approval for it. And she is more like, oh, but we like left Emmonsfield to save everybody. Like we left the two rivers to save our families. Like we have to be the heroes and continues to just be like the good, sweet girl that she is. And also the pick me girl that she is. Whereas Rand is very much like Moiraine could lie, blah, 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 blah. And eventually like Rand and parents start fighting. And I watched the episode over the weekend. Cannot for the life of me remember why they start fighting in the first place. They start fighting. And I, I watched this like two hours ago. They start fighting because as... Egwene and Rand are kind of fighting about, you know, Moraine, what they need to do about Matt. Rand says something and Perrin gets up and is just like, you need to apologize to her. And then it becomes this whole thing. And then Nynaeve steps in and makes the situation absolutely worse by going, I hate seeing you two fight over her like she's something you can win. And the scene just turns upside down. Yeah, that's right. I think it's um, Egwene is like mad because she's like, Matt left us. And Rand is like, well, you would know all about that, wouldn't you? Which is a pretty low blow from Rand. It's a low blow, but I mean, it's kind of fair. Shoot, like leave him. (laughs) And then Rand and Perrin start getting into it of, I knew you had a thing for her because, you know, the day Egwene and I started going out, you proposed to your wife. And he's just like, I love my wife. And it's like, I I hate... (sighs) I hate this scene, this this section of the scene. Ugh. I love this scene. I like it, but I also vehemently disagree with the idea that show Perrin has any kind of feelings for show Egwene. And I think that this is one of those instances where what Nynaeve says is not actually what's the case. Like she might believe that they have feelings for each other, but I don't think for a second that that's true. I think she's just mistaking this very close friendship between a man and a woman to be romantic when actually it's platonic. And I forget where I was going <laughs> going with this, but um, I do really, in, like, I think that the scene works really well to show all of the character motiva- motivations and, like, how they're all kind of being pressured by the situation that they're in and how, like, things are fracturing just a little bit. Yeah, that, that is why I like it. I like it for the characterization of the Emmonsfield Five, who I don't feel like we have gotten a ton of. Like, we haven't had a ton of screen time for them to kind of build as characters. And I think that this scene does a lot for them. I do think Chopin is worried that he likes Egwene because it's one of the things that Machin Sheen says to him is like, you loved another woman more than your wife. You killed Layla to get her out of the way. What's Machin Shin talking? I, but that's his own self-doubt. Like, <laughs> like we hear, like, for everyone else, it's always their own self-doubt. So, If you remember in the books, way, way, way back in Shadar Logoth, when they all got separated and it was Egwene and Perrin and they meet the, the Tinkers, there is that one scene in the very early pages of Eye of the World where Perrin is like, 
she looks very pretty when she's dancing. And I think that's where they draw that parallel from for feelings. Oh, I have not forgotten because that line is why I ship them in the beginning of the series more than I ship Rand <laughs> and Egwene. I think that line is why I ship them in the books. I totally ship Perrin and Egwene, like early Perrin and early Egwene in the books, not the show. I don't think they have any like romantic feelings for each other in the show. No, they definitely have more brother-sister vibes to me. Yeah. Like he's just looking out for her because Rand right now is being an absolute dick to Egwene. But he totally is. And then they all storm off and we get a braid tug by Nynaeve at the end of the scene. She like pulls her braid over her shoulder and like tugs it a little bit. And I was like, ha she does tug her braid in the show. No one get mad at the show saying she doesn't tug her braid. She does all the time. <laughs> then we get more Nynaeve because she follows Lan to his adopted family's house. Not very subtly. Lan definitely knows she's following him basically from the jump. And she like just sort of sits outside of his front door. Not very subtle by Nynaeve. And then he appears behind her. I don't know where he comes from, but very crafty by land. <laughs> it's a good scene. It is a good scene. He invites her inside. We meet um, some more Malkier who are adorable. Everyone in this scene is amazing. The dad is like, oh, she's beautiful. And Land's like, yeah, I hadn't noticed. Which is <laughs> <laughs> like, Lan, you've noticed. You know what's up. My one sad note about this scene is that the mom, the woman with the Kaisan, or Kisan, I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly, is uh, one of the women who joins the channeling link in episode eight and burns out, which is very sad. So one of Lan's family dies. I didn't notice that. That's horrifying. Yeah. Yep. I only noticed that on this rewatch, to be honest. Yeah, it's very sad. I think I I don't think I noticed that in my first couple of times through and then I saw it. And I was like, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Ma'am, no. And Lan is so cute with the kids. <laughs> He's like describing the Trolloc. My heart melts my heart. And then Nynaeve follows him back to his room. The way that they handle this scene sometimes gives me pause. Sometimes doesn't. Lan definitely says goodnight. And then Nynaeve doesn't seem to take no for an answer and goes into his room. But does at least say, do you want me to leave? And he clearly doesn't. So it's fine, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Do you want me to go? And nothing is said, by the way. They just slowly walk up to each other, put their hands on each other, and then some good times happen. Daniel Henney looks fine as hell in this scene. I'm just like, oh, he looks so good. I cannot blame Nynaeve for wanting to get some. I just don't necessarily agree with the way that she goes about the beginning of it. What do you think, Fenya? I mean, I feel like she does ask if she should leave, so... No, she asks, should I leave? In the beginning before, like, they're in front of the door and he's like, good night. Like, she's clearly, like, waiting for him to kiss her or something. And he's like, good night. And then he goes inside. And then she opens the door after him. Only after he derobes. Right. And I always kind of, like, viewed that as there being some kind of time skip. Like, it's not immediately afterwards. Like, she's gone back to her room, thought about it a little bit more, decided, what the hell, I might be dying tomorrow. I'm just going to go and see if my feelings are reciprocated. That's fair. That's fair. I'll I'll accept it. I'll take it. Maybe it won't bother me the next time I watch the episode. Took him a long time to take a shirt off. I mean, he, he might have been, I don't know, doing other things <laughs> in the room first. <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. Yeah, there, there's no perception of, of time passing with, with that happening. So it's hard to say. Yeah. So my personal headcanon, whether this is true or not, is that there is a, pass- a small passage of time. She's not just like immediately going back in and ignoring his goodnight. That's fair. I, I, I like that version better than my, she stood outside his door for five minutes, was like, screw that. <laughs> and went in. 
I don't think Nynaeve has the patience to stand outside a door for five minutes without just barging in. Absolutely not. Although I do like how after he says goodnight and he goes in to shut the door, he doesn't look back. It's a very clear dismissal. I don't know. I think it's he doesn't want to look back because if he does, he'll just be like, come on in. Yeah. Then he should invite her in in the first place. I've also thought of it as like it's a Malkier thing because Malkier men are like in the books. They have like a very weird like thing about sex. <laughs> like who tops? Well, uh, I, the books aren't a really great set of ground rules for that kind of thing. True. Very true. But I've, I've, I was like, maybe this is their nod to like the fact that Malkieri men are weird about sex. But after they hook up, Nynaeve is going to leave him, which I was like, Nynaeve, <laughs> girl, what are you doing? At least stay the night, honey. He is like, where are you going? And then they talk about his history and the fact that he is the last king of Malkier and how he's not a huge fan of that burden, of that duty, but he's going to do it. That's why he's with Moiraine. And then she does eventually stay the night, which is very sweet. It's a cute scene. They, they have a lot of cute moments together in this episode. We cut to another couple that have a big fight, a very relatable fight to me, of Egwene and Rand, where Egwene is like, I waited in my room for an hour for you to come and apologize, which I have said maybe that exact same thing to my husband. <laughs> and his response is exactly Rand's, which is, when you want to talk, you'll find me. I was like... These two are married. <laughs> I can also confirm that. I love this scene because I love seeing these two people in a relationship have difficulties, have an argument, and then talk it out like sensible people instead of having some kind of manufactured miscommunication driving the plot, which is one of my least favorite tropes in maybe ever. And it happens a whole hell of a lot in, in these books. Yes. There's so much just like intentional miscommunication in the books that it was really nice to see them not do that here and make it feel like these people do have a relationship they are in love yes i do ship them very heavily in the show <laughs> they should stay together forget you know everything else that is going to happen they make more sense than any of the other partners that they may or may not have i agree i want the alternate reality where rand becomes Egwene's warder and we don't get any of the other shenanigans <laughs> that happen in the book yes Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be a good time, wouldn't it? Ugh, like when he's like, I'll go to the White Tower. I'll be your warder. Even though he knows he can't because he knows he's the Dragon Reborn at that point. Like, it's so cute. I want it. Give it to me. I would read that fan fiction. I'm sure it's out there. Let's go to fanfiction.net and see if there's any. There is There's a Wheel of Time fan fiction out there. I've read some. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's tons on Archive of Our Own. Yeah, I've, I have read some, too. Not on fanfiction.net, though. Is that even still viable? That's a, that's an aside. <laughs> <laughs> that is an aside. Yes, it is. Anyways. Anyway. Uh, and then after Rand and Egwene go and have a delightful night of making up, uh, Egwene is falling is asleep. Rand wakes up, goes back to the archery. I don't know what you would call that. The shooting range? Archery range? I don't know. There's There's a term for it. The archery range. We'll go with that. And is like, locked in on getting those arrows into the target he hits the target every time and we have this incredible musical swell as it cuts back and forth between him like the different ways that he has realized he's the dragon reborn so like tam uh, not tam geez tam telling him that he's adopted um when tam is feverish the first time ran channels in the inn from episode four i believe three 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 four i don't know i think it's three okay three 
when Duran channels in the ways and then the Machin Jean telling him you are the Dragon Reborn. There's a little bit of spinny camera action work here. I'm not a huge fan of spinny camera action in general. Wish they hadn't done it here. They do it more in episode eight, which they definitely didn't do it in episode eight. But otherwise, I think the scene is incredible. And then it cuts immediately to him going to Min and he asks Min to like confirm whether or not he is the Dragon Reborn. And this is what I was talking about earlier with her kind of kind of liberal use of her visions because her visions are flashes like, ah, that person has a bloody crown above their head. What does that mean? This one has blood around their neck, like with Perrin, you know, golden eyes and blood at his mouth. And she just basically gives him the entire cold open from a vision that she saw off of somebody or off of Tam in, in Tarvalon. I'm like, hmm, okay. It's kind of a supplant of the Aes Sedai in New Spring who gives the vision that he is born. That's basically lifted from that and put in right here. Yeah, which is interesting because they reference Gitara's vision in episode six. So Gitara also had her vision. But that's what it felt like. It was just kind of a little too liberal with it. Oh, you know, it, if it was, oh, I saw snow and blood around Tam's feet, which she does say, but then she's like, then I saw a baby and then an I.O. woman or something. And she basically describes the whole scene. And I was like, I don't I don't really care for that that use of the vision, but hey, we need it for plot progression. Yeah, I mean, it was a little too detailed for my taste, but she's a plot device and always has been, so it made sense. <laughs> the scene I think is cool. It's another scene where it's cool until you think about it. Like, because she has, like, not only does she have the vision of Tam, for one thing, she can recognize that Tam and Rand have the same sword just by looking at the hilt of the Heronmark blade, which I'm like, okay, so every Heronmark blade's hilt is unique, is what I'm learning from this bit of, of, like, script drop. Also, like, what an incredible memory. I don't know how long ago she saw Tam, but presumably it was quite some time ago. 20. 20 years ago, pre more than 20 years ago, because Rand is not born yet. <laughs> yeah. And so to recognize the sword, like, I don't remember things that long. Yeah, it was, that's a wild. Also, the fact that it's her first vision and it's super specific. So it's like there is a baby born on this man adopts a baby that was born on Dragon Mount. And then he goes and takes and raises this baby in a village surrounded by two rivers. Gee, I wonder where that could be. And this baby is something impossible. Gee, I wonder what that baby could be. It's like, I really hope no one has ever asked Ben, what was your first vision? And if they did, I hope she lied through her teeth because any Aes Sedai asking Ben, what is your first vision would know immediately what she's talking about. I don't think at this point any Aes Sedai know about her other than Moraine. Moraine earlier says that the Aes Sedai have been keeping Ben a secret. Was it they, they had been keeping her a secret? I thought it was just Moraine had been keeping her a secret because they kind of are just very loose Fast and loose with uh, Min as a character in the show. Yeah. Also, if Moiraine had ever asked Min, what is your first vision? And Min had not lied to her. Moiraine would have gone to the two rivers like way earlier than 20 years ago. That's true. I do like that it's like Min's first vision was about Rand before he was born. So it's this pattern like pushing them together and drawing them together. But otherwise, I'm like, guys, this is like. <laughs> Guess I got to fall in love with them now. <laughs> Guess I'm going to. There is no choice. But she does specifically say before that whole vision quest thing, uh, what was it that she said? She said, rainbows, three women, and a carnival. I have thoughts about that for the spoiler section. Okay. Which we're almost to, because this episode closes out with the gang kind of getting back together in the morning. Egwene teases Nynaeve about not sleeping in her own bed. Egwene, you have no right to throw stones there. You were with Rand, but whatever. 
And then there's this really cool shot of like them all getting together and they're like, oh, where's Rand? And then we see Rand walking down the hallway. He knocks on the door. There's a knock on the door to them. Nynaeve opens up the door and it's Lan. And then he's like, Moiraine masked the bond, blah, blah, blah. And then we see Rand go to Moiraine, which I thought was like a really cool sort of like misdirection. Yeah. It was a dynamic like. Yeah. Like like we as the audience are like, oh, what's happening? Like this is what we think is happening. And it's I really liked that. And then Moiraine and Rand leave and go to the Blight <laughs> and get out on their own for some fun Blight times. So I guess since this is our first real look at the Blight, what did you think of it? Because they show him walking in, so we get to see a little bit of it. We'll see more, way more next episode. But first impressions on the Blight. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, not great. It's not. Correct me if I'm wrong, Diana. I think you have mentioned this to me before, but they were intending to shoot this on location the blight was going to be filmed at a at a real place and look really cool and then covid stopped all that yeah i think they were going to film it in a forest in new zealand if i'm not mistaken there was there is a creepy forest somewhere that they wanted to film in and then because of covid they couldn't which is you know unfortunate i do think they did an okay job some of the trees look very creepy but the blight to me looks very cut and paste like it looks like they made five trees and then used post like cgi post-production to make those five trees five thousand trees it's like if kudzu was blighted yes yeah also where are the worms the coolest part of the blight where are my worms at the trees were supposed to be grabby too because i I do very vividly remember being like yeah don't get too close to stuff because there was like a whole thing about a tree like whips out and grabs like something flying by and you're just like whoa and we don't get any of that here other than don't touch anything and then they promptly proceed to touch everything 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 yeah myrene i think is actively leaning on a tree when she says don't touch anything i'm like (laughs) ma'am I just felt like all of the trees were really short. It was. They, they were like, so Rand is like, what, 6'4 or something like that. So they, they're, they're, they're shorter than seven feet tall because they're like basically almost brushing his head. Yeah, I feel like that's the thing that gave me the most pause about it because I was expecting just a little more height to them. I guess it kind of gives that claustrophobic feeling of a blighted, rotting land, I guess. And it, to be fair, it does feel pretty claustrophobic, but just still not quite what I had expected. The first time I saw it, I literally went, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I was like, ah, COVID strikes again. <laughs> like, I, I am willing to, the more I watch these episodes, the less I, I do. But when I first watched them, I was willing to give these episodes quite a few passes because of COVID. What rewatch number are you on? I am in the double digits. And that's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think they do deserve some pass for doing these episodes in COVID. But that doesn't mean we can't critique things, too. True, true, yeah. Like, overall, I wasn't a fan of the episodes, but there's still a lot to like about them. Yeah, I mean, when these episodes hit, they hit right. Like, the Rand I Am the Dragon Reborn reveal is maybe my favorite moment in the in all of season one. It tops on your knees for me. Like, that scene gives me chills every time. It's so good. I'm surprised that tops on your knees for you. I, I know, I know. My I'm I'm betraying my lesbian ovary here. But uh, <laughs> but it's it is just so incredible. I, I still I ride hard for episode seven. But should we talk about some spoilers? Yeah, we got a little bit of time. All right. Yes. This is your warning. If you are only a show fan and you have not finished the books, stop now and join us for episode eight. Please hang up after the beep. Beep. 
All right. If you're still here, we're going to spoil stuff. I think we've talked a little bit about the darkness in Matt. It bothers me. I don't know what they're doing with it. I don't know if you guys have any more thoughts on it. It's them trying to create mystery. That's all it is. There's no darkness in my sweet baby boy's heart. Leave him alone. (laughs) Yeah. I don't have any more thoughts, but I mean, I think that that book Matt has some darkness in him in the beginning. Maybe that's just my frustration with him, which I've gone on about at length in other episodes. So I won't rehash that here. Show Matt, I think that less of like, I think, I think show Matt is a lot more understandable, not stupid dark. Yeah. They did a really good job of like humanizing Matt in the show, like making his stupid decisions have like at least some sort of semblance of thought behind them. And then they, I feel like they undercut that in like this episode and episode eight. And I'm like, just leave him alone. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree with you there. With the accepted rings, which we saw, we saw the of the show version of the accepted ring on Amalisa, which is the golden ring without the stone, which I thought was a cool way to do it. But it is essential in the books, in multiple books, that Egwene, Elaine, Nynaeve, I think Avienda at some point, all pretend to be Aes Sedai because they have the Aes Sedai ring. And they do that because like, at least Nynaeve is raised to be an accepted very quickly. And then they like get Aes Sedai rings from other people at some point. But if the accepted ring doesn't have the stone, I feel like it's going to be very, very obvious to people right away. Nynaeve is not a full Aes Sedai. So I'm like, how are they going to do that? Like, how are they going to fake being an Aes Sedai if they have like this different version of the ring? I'm sure they'll figure it out. But it is another thing that I've been like wondering about for a long time now since we've seen the ring in episode seven. Do we think that normal people know the difference between the accepted ring and the full Aes Sedai ring? It's, it, I feel like it's so obvious. I guess like if you don't see a lot of, I feel like, okay, so I have multiple thoughts and I'm not being super coherent. If you're in a city, it does seem like you've probably interacted with Aes Sedai at least a little bit or at least seen them. Like it feels like maybe. And also because it is such a, big difference it's a stone versus not a stone like the ring is clearly incomplete if i knew anything about the white tower which maybe general people don't know anything about the white tower i would be like oh this is not a full Aes Sedai." yeah see i feel like and maybe i'm just completely off base here but i feel like most people like common people regular people that all of these women are going to be interacting with wouldn't know the difference because they haven't actually like met any Aes Sedai in real life. And I feel like that's partially why Nynaeve and them are able to get away with it in the book, pretending to be Aes Sedai. So I'm not convinced that people would necessarily know the difference. I mean, obviously I think that people like in courts and nobles and people who do come into contact with Aes Sedai, I feel like they would know. But the everyday person, I'm not sure. What do you think, Thad? Any thoughts? I think they'll just steal some stones to stick into the rings. (laughs) (laughs) fair enough i also could see them stealing rings from the sisters who are captured by the shan chan that's that's my like guess for where they're gonna get some rings from i originally i thought they were not gonna they like Egwene was not gonna give the rings back that she stole from the white cloaks and then she did and i was like oh okay well it's it's a lot of red and yellow so speaking of rings for Egwene and Nynaeve's vision, Nynaeve's ring or Nynaeve's vision is a ring of gold, which I think maybe show fans are supposed to think is the um, Aes Sedai ring. I am convinced it is the ring of Malkier that she gets from Lan. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought too. And then Egwene's vision is a white flame of which uh, just a white flame, but it's clearly the white flame of Tarvalon. 
clearly a, a reference to her being the Amarlin seat. Made me very happy. Min also doesn't specify who gets those visions. She just says one of the girls and the other girl. So Moiraine doesn't know that she's walking around with a future Amarlin, but we do. And then another vision is I see the Amarlin seat and she's wearing full regalia. She's going to be your downfall, which Min says to Moiraine, I think is a reference to Elida. How do you think that's a... F- oh, because you want to think it's Sawan and not Elida who, you know, does what she does best, being a terrible person. Yeah, I think that they're going to be using misdirection here. So what you first think is the answer is not actually going to be the answer. As it should be. Yes, agreed. I feel like for show only people, this is like a, oh no, what Swan had Moiraine do is going to lead to Moiraine's downfall. But I actually think that like one, Swan wasn't in full regalia when she told Moiraine to go to the eye of the world. They were in their love shack. And two, like it's going to happen in the future. And essentially, if that is what it was, that's already happened. And Moiraine's downfall is already secured. So I think this is going to be something more. How Elida is going to be Related to Moiraine's downfall is yet to be seen because Elida is not involved in any way with what ends up happening to Moiraine when she falls through the door and gets like shut into the Tower of Genji. So I was a little confused about that, but to me, this is definitely an Elida reference. The first one, I'm excited for more Elida. And then the last vision, because all of the foreshadowing in any Min episode is going to be Min's visions is Min's talking to Rand that she sees rainbows and carnivals and three beautiful women. So we know who the three women are. I'm not so sure about the rainbow for some reason. I have no idea about the rainbows. Could it be a very, 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 very vague reference to Kalendor? Could be. Could also be a reference to enlightened Rand and him like being able to affect the weather. Like a very, very late reference. Could be. If so, it's going to take a while to get there. True. Well, I mean, they were foreshadowing in book stuff in book one, so. That's true. Did Rand ever have anything to do with Luca Vale's carnival? No, which is why I was like, carnivals? Like, hey, how are we going to get the car? Like, we're really going to get the circus arc? Really? Everybody but the boys was involved with that. Matt was even involved in it because he stays there with Tuan. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's really only Matt and Perrin who don't have to deal with that man. So I have no idea on Carnival. I'm drawing a blank on that one. Yeah, I found that confusing, but potentially exciting. And my one other note from this is that Min thinks she's beautiful. I'm happy for Min because she says three beautiful women. She doesn't say two beautiful women and me. She says three beautiful women. Good for you, Min. Good for you, Min. Maybe the Carnival is going to be a reference to what Rand is off doing next season. Oh, that could be. I mean, I don't know how that would tie back with the books. Not at all, but it kind of seems like they're going to go off script quite a bit for Rand. They're going to have to for how the story unfolds in, you know, book two slash book three. However, they're going to plan it all out because if we just stuck to story content, we would have Moraine in like half an episode tops. So, yeah, we're going to get a little bit more, which I'm fine with. Hey, give, give me more world building. Give me more of that. Just as long as the uh, core of the story is still addressed, you know? Yep. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So it seems like we're like middling on episode seven. I'm I'm very positive on it, even though it leaves me with many questions. There are aspects of it I like, but overall, I wasn't a big fan of seven. Cold Open was definitely top of the tops. That's what elevates it above uh, a lot of others. I like episode seven. I think that it does a lot for the relationship building between all of the characters, which I appreciate. I mean, I do have some issues with it still, but overall, definitely positive feelings towards it. 
Thank you very much for listening to our discussion of Amazon's Wheel of Time Season 1, Episode 7. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to talk about, feel free to send us an email to producerpvt at gmail.com, or you can join us on tarvalon.net. In our general forums, we have a special thread called Tarvalon Talks pinned at the top of the page. You can also chat with us via tarvalon.net's Discord server in the Tarvalon Talks Discord channel. See you next time!